We're talking auction drafts and contract leagues on Rotoviz Radio. What's up, Rotoviz? I'm Dave Cabin, Senior Fantasy Analyst at Rotoviz. This is Rotoviz Radio brought to you by the FFPC. I'm joined by Matthew Friedman, editor in chief of Fantasy Labs, part of the Action Network. He is back for two consecutive episodes, which I think might be the record in the last couple of months. What's going on, Matt? Yeah, two in a row. It's a, it's a pretty strong effort by me. Uh, but as, as you see, uh, there's not going to be much that I'm going to contribute to this episode, which is exactly the way I like it. So we're in fine form. Yeah. So the reason being, we're talking auction drafts, and I thought that a man of Matt Friedman's ilk might have something to offer, but it turns out you've only been in one auction league in your entire fantasy experience. Yeah. One auction league, and I did it for one year. And it was, and I think it was actually the first year that we did, um, for Rotoviz, the reality sports league. Uh, wow. and the draft just took so long. And it's, I mean, there were some great people in it. Uh, I believe Sean was in the league. Rich yeah. Rebar was in the league. I think Davis Maddock was in the league, but there were like a number of people. This was like early Rotoviz days. And, um, the draft took like five hours. I don't know if that's typical of like an auction league or not. No, it's but not. It was just like, it's like, screw this. Like, I, like life is too short. Like, I don't like being in tons of leagues anyway, just cause I don't want to <laughs> devote like, uh, you know, an hour and a half to two hours of being in like a standard redraft league. Uh, best ball is a little bit different, of course. Like, you know, if there's a, like a clock on it, like a running clock. I mean, of course you can have a running clock on other formats, but it just kind of tends to go with that. But like at this point, uh, it was like, no, like I understand that auction leagues are the, um, the highest leverage, like, uh, most skill based, uh, type of format you can have. Uh, it's like kind of like poker in a way. Um, but it's just like, it, it, it takes too much effort. And I don't want to put that much time in, into something, uh, where like the money is going to be tied up with it for, you know, like, uh, 18 weeks. Okay. Wow. This is, um, th- this is perplexing to me on a number of levels. One, the fact that you have just assumed that because the RSO and the contract leagues, which rightfully so take that long that you've extrapolated that to all auction drafts taking that long. Second, I find it very interesting about the worry about the investment of time into something that you already spend so much time with. I think that's actually the most perplexing of the entire thing. <laughs> I'm a lazy person. <laughs> that's that's something that a lot of people don't know about me, but I'm pretty lazy. So like or or let me let me rephrase that. Like I'm very uh careful with my time. So okay. there are certain things where I feel like it, it makes sense to commit time to certain endeavors. And then other things where it's like, uh, I don't, I just don't see the value in it. So I don't see the value in like the, um, like the intellectual thrill or whatever it is that I might get out of playing in an auction league. I don't think would justify the extra time I have to put into it to do the auction relative to a like uh you know like um a, a slow draft. You know what I mean where I just do it at my okay. convenience. I got gotcha, you. I got gotcha. you. All right. Well, I will say this in my experience auction drafts take the same amount of time as 
your regular redraft league. So anyway, the reason that we're bringing up and discussing this is because I wanted to do an extensive episode on auction drafts because I believe that in many regards, the actual draft for an auction is more fun uh, than your typical redraft. We're going to talk about contract leagues later in the show. That won't take up quite as much of our time as the auction league. Um, but I guess the other thing is there's really not as much coverage on auction leagues as there are for redraft. And there seems to be somewhat of a demand for more content on that. And uh, I think that actually the most popular article that I've had up on Rotoviz centers on auction drafts. So I wanted to take some time to run us through that. I guess, Matt, seeing as you are such a noob at this, there are any questions that maybe somebody that's never done an auction would have right off of the bat that you think I should bring up first? Uh, well, it's hard for me to get in that mindset because even though I, I don't play auction, I'm such an expert at everything. No, I'm joking. Uh, I think one of the, the big questions that, uh, that people have entering auction leagues, uh, yep. is to kind of think about, um, like when you want to nominate players that you want. Um, and then like how to kind of stratify the, um, the salary cap that you have. So like, what is the, the proper salary amount that should be allocated yep. to your wide receiver one versus your wide receiver two and so on? Yeah. So, so those are actually all good questions. And I think some of these will kind of, what my plan was, I'm going to kind of talk through some of the key highlights from the articles that I've done on auctions the last couple of years. And, uh, we'll get down really to the specific of how you're determining the percentage, because I think that you should really be going a percentage, the percentage of dollars that you allocate to each right. position. But the nomination thing, I think, is one thing that uh, is always one of the first questions. Now, we actually um, – I got into a little bit of an argument about this with a couple of the very smart people at Rotoviz that we were doing a mock auction with last year. My take is that no matter what, you want to be – nominating, especially on in the earlier rounds, players that other teams are going to want to get. I know some guys, I believe it was actually Josh Hermsmeyer was saying that he likes to nominate kickers and DST right off the bat so he can get that spot filled into his roster. But my thing is, you know you're going to spend $1 on a kicker or DST anyway. Like when you're planning for this draft, you should be doing it backwards. You allocate out the positions you're not going to spend any money on. You know that's going to be a one. So at the end of the day, it doesn't really matter that you actually have that inked into your roster. What you want to do is get dollars out of the pool and you want to nominate guys that you're not going to go after for a couple of reasons. The biggest one is not only... Is it getting other players to potentially bid up? If you get players that other guys are going to be interested in early on, you can raise the, um, you, you can do some things to kind of manipulate the flow of the draft, especially taking away one player, um, that's important to a tier, if you will, is really going to increase the demand for that player and get more money out of the pool. And the other thing to remember too is if you're nominating a player that other guys want early, uh, and they end up taking him, that's somebody that they have on their roster and that's taking away one more person that might compete with you when you're going for a similar type of player. So I, I think that that's something a lot of people really want to consider. They also like to go ahead and try to get players that they're interested in, uh, but you run the risk of that player getting bid up, especially because people are going to spend more money early on in the in the auction. So I always think if there's a player that you think that you're high on, so like if there's a guy at Rotoviz that we like that other sites aren't touting, 
you're not going to want to throw him out right away because if somebody starts bidding him up, there's two things that can happen. Somebody else gets him or you might get him for higher than you were expecting to. Whereas if you're thinking that he's not going to be a coveted player, why not just wait till the end of the draft when you can get him and even it ends up being the same price because other people didn't bid him up. You don't run the risk of, of letting that happen. Yeah, there's so much game theory that goes into it. And it, it makes me think that it's similar in a way, uh, to kind of ownership percentages in DFS. Yeah. In terms of thinking what the, like what the herd mentality is going to be. But I think it can go, uh, a, a couple of different ways. So I think if you are with, uh, a group of people that's really aggressive, um, then I think, it makes a lot of sense to to do what you've talked about. I mean, I think it makes sense to do it anyway, but if you are with uh, some people who are newer to auctions, uh, I think there can also be like the opposite effect where people aren't sure like how much they want to, to allocate to different positions. Right. Um, maybe they don't have their, their player list tiered. Uh, they just have like a, like a cheat sheet and they're mm-hmm. not really thinking about like the stratification of players. Um, so I, I think it's important to test the waters with, with players you don't want first. And then once you get a pretty quick sense of the aggressiveness of the other people drafting, then I think you can, you can pivot. So I think if they're aggressive, then you keep on nominating players you don't want. If you see that they're tentative, then you try to maybe sneak in a player you do want. But I agree. It probably shouldn't be a player who is flying under the radar. It should mm-hmm. be someone you want who is kind of a, a brand name. Um, yeah. and maybe you can get that player cheaper than you otherwise would have just because the field is a little tentative and kind of feeling its way into the process. Yeah, I, I actually think that that all makes really good sense. And for a guy that hasn't done a lot of auctions, I really think you kind of hit the nail on the head there. So most <laughs> of what I'm talking about here, uh, I'm, I'm especially focusing on the earlier uh, rounds in the auction because I think that's where I see the most mistakes get made. And also, I think that there's a lot of bad auction advice out there because it's not really focusing on, like you said, the game theory. There's a lot of game theory that goes into auctions. And then also, there's some tools out there that are supposed to help people get ready for their auction, but I really think are actually going to make them have a worse auction than they would otherwise. Also, Henry the Cat is back um, messing up the podcast again this week. So... <clears throat> We're going to press on. But another question that I get a lot, Matt, too, is can zero running back work in an auction league? So before we get into the major specifics of this, since I know that this is going to be a question that's on people's minds, I'm going to share my roster from last year's uh, Rotoviz auction. And I'm not bringing this up just to show that I killed this auction. I'm bringing it up because even in a Rotoviz league, it's going to show that zero running back was very, very viable. So it was a $200 budget. And I believe that we were going with two running backs, two flex, two wide receiver, one tight end, one quarterback, kicker, DST. Uh, and then I believe the balance was bench. So how many? Yeah. So there was eight, 18. Uh, it was 18 man roster. So now keep in mind, this was a Rotoviz league. I still got Keenan Allen, Jarvis Landry, Larry Fitzgerald, Devontae Adams, Michael Crabtree, and Marvin Jones, Cam Newton at quarterback for three bucks. Chris Thompson, I got late for three bucks. Uh, Hunter Henry was my tight end at two bucks. I also had Duke Johnson, Eddie Lacy, Bilal Powell, Frank Gore, Cole Beasley, Giovanni Bernard. Now, my running backs didn't really work out, but I mean, I think for all intents and purposes, that's a pretty solid zero running back type of squad. 
Yeah, and uh, especially, and I should say, I'm assuming that this was a PPR format. Correct, Which yeah. makes it a ton of sense, both for Zero RB and for the roster that you put together. I, I think that's a, a great roster. Yeah, so I actually believe, I didn't look it up, but according to Devin McIntyre, I ended up with six of the top 15 receivers from going with that configuration. And I yeah. actually think that... um I was able to put together a team in the auction, even against Rotoviz guys going zero running back. That was probably my favorite uh, out of any team that I drafted. Granted, we didn't play the league out, but that just shows you some of the things you can do in an auction. So if you're ready now, Matt, I am going to give some of the notes from my article. So feel free to interject if you think that there's any follow-ups that you have, or if you think that there's natural questions that come off of them. Yeah, that's cool. But I plan on basically saying nothing. I'm just going to put the the headset down and go like make a sandwich or something. (laughs) What type of sandwich would you be making? Uh, I don't know. We'll just have to see what meat is in the refrigerator. (laughs) Oh, gosh. All right. All right. Let's get back on track here. So the first thing, Matt, that people I think don't pay enough attention to is that auction drafts are not linear. So in your standard snake draft, There's that natural progression, there's that rhythm, and that tends to carry from league to league. So right now, if I ask you, you know, where Michael Thomas gets drafted, you're going to say, well, it's normally towards the end of the first round, early second round, right? And we know that that's going to happen time and time again. Yeah. Yeah. I hear you there. Right. But the difference is in an auction, because there is that process of nomination, you have drastic differences that you can see, and you're also going to have... It's not that he's getting picked with the eighth, ninth, tenth pick. There's there's those dollars that's going to vary from league to league. So I think one mistake people make is trying to either practice using some type of software that's using very similar values each time, or they're looking at that static set of values that they've generated heading into their auction, but there's a huge problem with this. And ultimately, it comes down to, I always get asked, how do I set my values for an auction? How much should I pay for a guy like Devontae Adams? Is Devontae Adams worth $55? And my answer is, you're not thinking about things correctly, right? Like anything that is offering you values for an auction, you really need to think critically about if it makes sense to use because you are one actor amongst nine or 11 in this auction. And oftentimes we like to bring in financial or economic terms into fantasy football when they don't apply. The auction is one of the few times that they apply because you are in this market with these other actors and you can't set the values because all it takes is one or two guys that are very aggressive in a league to dynamically shift it. Or you show up with a set of values, you print out from some site, and there's a couple things missing in that context. Perhaps the values that were generated had fewer players on rosters than what you're using, or the mix of positions was different. And those values have gone out the window. Uh, And I talk about this in one of the articles, which is called Supply, Demand, and Auction Drafts. But essentially, one of the first things that you learn in economics, if you take a class, did you ever take econ, Matt? Yes, I did. You did. So obviously, you know the supply and the demand curve. Uh, yes, but I mean, I took it a long time ago and I would say I've forgotten a lot. Forgot. I mean, I remember things, but it's not as if like I would call myself a student of economics. All right. Well, so I'm going to give a quick little rehash here. So basically there's something that you use in economics to understand pricing and how supply and demand impact it. So we're going to go very simplistic here, but there's supply, which is 
we'll call it like the amount of a particular resource. And then there's demand, which is the desire for that particular resource. So they do what's called a uh, supply and demand curve, which is basically, and seeing as we have video for the first time, I'm going to try to put out a video that has this. There's going to be a graphic and I'm also going to do it with my fingers. So if you make an X with your fingers, the left finger is going to be the supply curve and the right finger is going to be the demand curve. And where they cross is referred to as the equilibrium price, which in economic theory is supposed to be the price that goods sell at. It's the most efficient point. And you can see that as you move your fingers, that in directions left to right, that is shifting the demand curve and that's changing the price of the good, or in this case, the player that is up for auction in the draft. So you can start to think about this, and we do it in some of the articles that I did on the site, about how demand and supply, well, really to keep it simple, demand is going to shift in your auction given what people do, and that's going to make every auction very unique. And you can have some where the top tier guys are going for like 60 bucks, and others where the top tier guys are going for like 45 So my belabored point here is if you go into an auction with a set of values, a couple things can happen. One is if you have every player in that auction in the top tier priced at the $50 mark, what happens when the other guys in your draft are valuing a lot of these guys at 60 and you end up completely missing on the tier one guys? And then lots of times if the tier one guys are expensive, the tier two guys are going to be expensive. You could completely miss out. Alternatively, if you start thinking that you're getting all of these values because you're getting guys at $55 and you start loading up on them and then you realize that guys of that tier are going later for like $45, you realize that your values you set going into the draft were more or less meaningless. Do you think that that makes sense? Yeah, so there there are so many questions. Yeah. Uh, I think that are popping up from this, but but uh, one being, uh, so the, one of the situations you just talked about there was, uh, let's say I think you said like you spend fifty three or fifty four, whatever it is, on, on Michael Thomas, yep. and then maybe you see some other players of similar caliber uh, uh, be acquired for uh, fewer dollars in the yeah. next couple of picks. Yep. So what are your thoughts on? Uh, on like nominating, like, do you want to be someone who is a market maker um, and like setting the kind of like the, the benchmark rate or like the anchoring rate for a player within a tier? Or do you want to be someone who slow plays it a little bit and tries to uh, acquire someone maybe in the middle of the tier? Yeah. Um, you know, like in that sweet spot, maybe like uh, if you wait too long in that tier, then you end up having to overspend to get the last player available in a tier. So yeah. like within a tier, when are you looking to target certain players? Right. That That's an awesome question, especially because there was one phrase that you used in there to be the maker. And I think it's very dangerous to try to be the person that's setting prices because you don't know what everybody else is thinking. And though we'd like to think that other people are going to make rational, logical choices, that doesn't always happen. So if you're trying to set the price, very often that's not going to happen unless you're the person that is going or willing to spend the most, which I don't think you want to be. So you like to get there in the middle. You see what the pricing for that tier has been established at. And generally, similar players go for around that price. However, you hit upon one thing, which I call the end of tier shift, which is generally what we see is other drafters are aware of the quality of players as well as you are. They know the general perceptions. And if everyone else is seeing that 
there's one player left in the tier. So maybe there's one tier two running back left. His price is going to rise a little bit because the demand for him goes up, shifts the demand curve to the right, raises that equilibrium price. And then that player is going to go for a little bit more than the players before him went. So generally, the sweet spot, as you said, is right in the middle of the tier. I think it's dangerous to try to be the first one unless there's a player that you absolutely want to build into your team no matter what then you can go for it. But oftentimes, you're best to try to settle down in the middle. All right. Uh, a follow-up question sure. on this. Earlier, you you had noted that, um, you know, whereas most snake drafts, you know, like they're very predictable. You have a very solid sense of the first five players or the first 12 players yep. who are going to be drafted. And it seems as if it might be easy for people in an auction draft to use the uh, the knowledge of snake drafts as something of an anchor. Yep. So they might feel as if they should start a, uh, an auction draft by nominating one of the big four running backs or something like that. Yep. Do you find that there uh, are exploitable advantages to to going outside of the like the normal like the top 12 players or the top 24 players uh when you're starting a draft i think that some of that comes down to knowing your league so if i'm in a league that i've been in for 10 years and i i know there's some tendencies where players or drafters might like certain players or there's a certain mold that they're going to go for if there's a hometown preference then i would throw those out uh, when I've been in expert auctions, what I've done, because I don't have that type of information, if there's particular analysts in the league that I know really like players that I'm not planning on going after, that I like other options better in that tier, I will toss those players out. And there are some guys that everybody is planning on going into the auction thinking they're going to get for a value. Those are sweet guys to nominate. Um, at points that might be earlier than they would come up in a snake draft because everybody was thinking to themselves going in, okay, this was a guy that I'm going to try to get. So if you can find those guys, you can actually get them to get bid higher and lose becoming quote unquote a value in the draft or in your auction. All right, good stuff. Move along. <laughs> so this brings me to a really important thing though that I, that I think we need to cover more than anything, right? Which is... There's the supply and the demand. You you recognize that you're not setting the values in your draft. But another thing that permeates into this is this idea of value. And this is one of the things where I don't feel like there's that one-from-one one comparison between what you might have if you're thinking about everything in financial terms. And that is because in fantasy football, you hear so much about value. And I think we do this too much in redraft where we're trying to get good deals, right? Like everything in life, you normally want to get a good deal on. But I think that when you're drafting your team in an auction, you don't want to get overly concerned about value. I'm not saying pay like 10% more for a player than analogous players are to him. But if you're going after AJ Green as your first wide receiver and you end up needing to spend an extra three or five dollars, then you feel like you should. That's fine. Make yourself uncomfortable because your dollars are best spent in the beginning of the draft. There's something that I call auction inflation and inflation in economics or finance refers to basically in a simplistic sense, the buying power of your dollar decreasing. As the draft goes along, the auction goes along, the players start to suck, right? So you want to spend 
as much money as you can on the good players. So that $3, that $5 is much better to get invested into a player like AJ Green than maybe like a flyer like a Josh Doxson or somebody like that at the end of the draft. So too often what I see is people not wanting to spend an extra 2 or $3 on the high level guys as things move along, they're left with this big budget, but nobody really to spend it on. So you want the majority of your dollars going into the very good players, right? Like you, you, who cares if you're able to outbid people at the end for those lower level players? You want the good players on your team. Uh, and then the other, let me, so let me pull up my notes. So the, so those are some of the key things. Um, and, and I think it should go without saying, right? Like, you don't want to be that person that leaves your draft with money on the table, uh, which again brings me to pushing yourself out of your comfort zone early on. I think that's the best advice I can give to anybody because you don't want to leave the draft with money on the table and it's best to realize that you could spend too much early, but that's not as much of a mistake as spending too much late. So like the auctions that I've done where I've gotten into trouble have been when I've tilted off of my original plan and I end up, you know, having this surplus of money that I need to spend on running backs that I know I'm probably never going to play. Um, which brings me to a- another point that I wanted to make, Matt, which is we, we focused a lot on this show about roster construction and talking about how there's things that you can do to position yourself to have a successful season or increase your probability. So some of that is building in a good balance of upside, getting a little bit of safety where you need it, maybe making a strength in your roster, choosing a weakness. I think that the auction format is one where you're really able to do that, uh, which is why I would caution you against what some of analysts will tell you, which is just go and get your guys. Just get all those guys that you like and that you feel good about. That's a slippery slope to me. You still want to focus, and it's easier to do this than in a snake draft, on putting together a well-balanced roster, uh, anchoring yourself with a particular position, not just getting a mix of guys that you that you like or that can become values, but finding those guys that fit into the broader context of your roster in a way that is that that works, which is why I will try to focus less on saying to myself heading into the draft, like I need to get Tyreek Hill or I need to get Doug Baldwin. Instead, I'll think about the profile that they fit into. And when we reach a point in the draft where a player of that profile is going for a price that seems to make sense, given on what I've seen, I'll go after that profile at that time. So see if there's any other questions that come for, that come to your mind as I, as I look through the rest of my notes here. Yeah. One thing that I think is interesting is that, uh, so in, in the draft format, sorry, uh, like snake format, yep. there are some players who will basically never end up on my team. Like regardless of kind of the roster construction I use, um, or like when I'm drafting certain positions, some players will just never end up on my team because I don't think that they are values at their ADP. Um, and I think the one thing that is interesting kind of like from a bigger portfolio perspective is that you are much likelier to get in an auction format a lot of the players that you miss in uh, in regular kind of quote unquote like, uh, you know, snake drafts. Yep. So uh, I think that's something that that is interesting that I hadn't really thought about before. Yeah, because like my my realistic player pool in uh, in a snake draft, like it's not 
like 150 or 180 players. It is more like, uh, I don't know, probably like 90, maybe even like 70 or 60, just because like at a certain point in the draft, you have your favorites in each round right? and you can normally get those guys in each round and you just kind of tend to default to them. Yeah. And, and that brings up something too, right? Um, which is why I think when you're planning and, and there's one key thing that I haven't mentioned here too, which is there is a terminal amount of dollars that are in your auction. So what you'll see happen is in general, if high tier wide receivers are going for a lot of money, the latter uh, or like, you know, like once you get to the middle rounds, guys that are maybe tier three fringe tier four wide receivers are going to start to go for cheaper because people have already sunk in significant dollars to their wide receiver position. There is less demand because these drafters in your league have less money. So players are going to go for cheaper. So what you have to remember is that the tier pricing is going to be relative to each other. So if running back Early round running backs are going for high dollars in an auction. That means that later on, the running backs are going to go for cheaper. So you got to keep that in mind because that really does open you up to getting these interesting mixes. Normally, you're never going to be able to build your team around tier three wide receivers. In an auction, you really could. You wait till those tier three players start coming up and you just start going after them. But what I like to do when I'm planning for my draft, as I alluded to earlier, and I have percentage breakdowns of of how I've prepared for this in the past, and I have how I allocate my dollars for zero running back up on the site, is I just basically look at that particular league. I see what position I want to build my roster around. I then work backwards and I say, I'm going to put like 1% into kicker, DST, any other position. And then you look at the mix between normally running back and wide receiver, and you say, what percentage am I comfortable spending on a particular position? So for me, for wide receiver, normally it's around like 70 to 75%. And then I'm not focused so much on how I'm going to break down that percentage. Because like I said, in general, the relative pricing of the tiers depends on that auction. And if um, wide receivers are for going for too much earlier, I know that they're going to start to come down in the middle rounds and then you could build a team around a really solid group of like tier three or tier four players, or there's all these different mixes that you can do. And I like to workshop out all of these scenarios beforehand so that as things are moving along, I have a plan in place no matter what I'm seeing in those first like 12 picks. Yeah, I think that's interesting. I think it's important to think of the uh, the the positions that you need not individually, but uh, as a yeah. cohort. Yeah. Yeah. I think that's the way to do it. I think that's smart. Yeah. And then the other thing I should point out there too is the tiers. When you're thinking about players in tiers, you can't think about them as your personal tiers or your Rotoviz tiers because again, you're not setting the prices. So what I would do is if I know I'm going to be doing an auction on ESPN software, I'll go, I'll look at the average auction, auction prices and get a sense of relative to other players in the same position, what tiers are naturally forming. So I'm not going to be looking at the dollars so much as are there three running backs that are vastly priced higher uh, at their average values than the next set of running backs and look and see how the tiers develop like that. Because oftentimes, just like we see in snake drafts, whatever the experts on that site are saying uh, or the values that they've set, that tends to permeate into the behaviors of everybody that's using these sites software. So you start to get a sense of um, how the tiers are going to develop 
at that particular site. That's a huge thing that you need to keep in mind. And I actually think that that um, is something that's a little bit exploitive in uh, actual your regular redraft league as well. Yeah, uh, I totally agree with what you're saying. Um, part so like your approach to this and knowing that there are people like you who take your auction enthusiasm to this level that's also part of why i don't play in auction because <laughs> like I, I i know i'm just gonna lose yeah. like i know i'm drawing dead yeah well i mean i i think though like i said there's a lot of things that you can exploit and a lot of it I really think in an auction is not being too rigid. And if you really go into an understanding that you're not setting the prices and that your cheat sheet can be rendered worthless by so many things right off the bat and you're reacting and you use percentages, you're going to be so much more ahead of the game because a lot of people aren't thinking about the fact that, okay, the implication of early round running backs going for 20 more dollars then early round wide receivers is going to have this downstream effect, which is probably going to be the later round wide receivers are going to be a little bit uh, higher priced relative to the early round wide receivers and the late round running backs are going to be less expensive. There's not a lot of people in your auction that are going to be thinking this through. And uh, so I'd recommend like if you're really focused and you have an auction coming up, go and check out the article that I have, which is supply demand and auction drafts because the visuals will help contextualize this more. And I know I'm losing some context because we're kind of jumping all over the place. And I think I did a better job of laying it out. But um, really, the key points are that you need to recognize that your auction has this very unique supply and demand that's always shifting. It's not linear. So you can't go in with your set list of prices. You've got to make yourself uncomfortable. It's better to spend your dollars early on than later. Uh, there's some things you can do with your nominations. And I did not mention this before, but let someone else drive up the prices. You don't want to be that guy that is sitting there bidding up all like trying to make players go for these expensive prices. There's two reasons for this. One, it only really has downside for you because there's naturally going to be a couple of other people that want to do this anyways. And if you get stuck, you're going to be in a real bad spot. And then the other thing that can happen is you start bidding up people. They want to do the same to you. So again, we get back to some of that game theory there. Uh, Look at your roster as percentages, allocate a percentage of whatever the budget is to each particular position, fill that as it goes along and recognizing that there's probably going to be opposite relationships of the early tier players at a position and the later tier players. And uh, you got to remember the end of tier shift and really get yourself familiar with the site that you're at, how the auction tiers are going to form. Any follow-ups, Matt? Uh, no, that was very informative and uh, more than I ever wanted to know about auction strategy. <laughs> all right. Well, hey, here's the thing. Like I said, I think that actually covers just about all of the content from my most popular article out there. So everybody do me a solid because I basically just gave you my most popular article for free, which is follow me on Twitter. This is the one time I'm ever going to go this this route because I think it's silly, but I do think that um, you're kind of... I don't know how to say this, Matt, but basically, like, regardless of how good of an analyst you might be, uh, it plays into people's perception how many follows followers you have on Twitter. Do you know what I mean? Yeah, no, definitely. Yeah, like I'm I'm a trash analyst, but I have a decent Twitter <laughs> following just because I've been around long enough. Uh, even though I even though I suck at Twitter, like I'm I'm the worst on Twitter. Like yeah. I just, I'm so lazy. I, I don't want to tweet things. Well, yeah. I mean, I don't like Twitter either. Like, I think the whole thing is kind of silly because I feel like in, in many regards, it's just this big attention grab, right? 
Yeah. But if you do want to uh, check out those articles, remember that you can get a listeners-only 30% discount to a Rotoviz NFL Pass through the NFL Podcast homepage, rotoviz.com forward slash podcast. Your subscription gives you unlimited access to all of our premium NFL content. And you can support the pod by subscribing to and rating Rotoviz Radio Channel on iTunes. Do that, and you'll be eligible to win a free $35 entry to a league at the FFPC. Go to iTunes, leave a review with your name in it, and then listen to future episodes to hear if you're the winner. Also, if you're interested in being in an FFPC league with some of the Rotoviz writers and podcasters, email us at rotovizradio at gmail.com and we'll get that set up. And as we said before, uh, the episode where everybody called him with their bold predictions was absolutely fantastic. So before the start of the season, we want to focus some more on strategy. If you have any strategy-related questions or topics that you'd like to discuss, please call into the show. Uh, the number is 978-925-7628 and leave us a voicemail. And Matt, we actually did not discuss this before the show started, but we have another uh, free FFPC entry to give away. So I'm thinking that maybe whoever sends us in the most interesting strategy topic can win that entry unless you have a better idea. Yeah, I think it will be hard for us to, uh, I, I think to pick objectively what is the most interesting yep. strategy topic. Uh, so maybe we just do it randomly. If you if you submit one, then you'll be in the drawing for it or something like okay, that. Okay, I like that. I like that. So I'm, I'll throw in the caveat that we'll filter out any that are just bad. Sure. <laughs> <laughs> that, that's fine for me. Your, your discretion. All right, my discretion. So we're going to filter out. If, if there's any that suck, we'll, we'll filter them out. But more or less, I'm sure they'll be great given the content or the quality that we had on the uh, Bold Predictions episode. So uh, very quickly uh, here, Matt. You did play in the Reality Sports Online League. You did not have as much uh, contract league, league experience, must like, you know, really, what have you been doing in your days of playing fantasy football? Have you been in any other contract leagues? No, this is this is the only contract league I've ever been in. Um, I was, my team was horrible, uh, although I should say I, I had some uh, very distinct run bad um, but I, uh, I feel like I cleaned things up in a like very like general managerial sense. Okay. Uh, I'm trying to remember who took over the team the next year. I think it might have been John Silvis. Uh, I might be wrong about that. But I think the person who took over the team the year after me maybe made it to the championship game. Wow. Because I had I I tried to structure things in such a way where uh, it was like very leveraged. So either my team was going to be very good or it was going to suck. But either way, like I was clearing a lot of, um, like a lot of, uh, cap space so that the next year, um, I would have the ability to go after a lot of players if I wanted. Okay. Um, that, that is fair. So do you think that if you were to do one of these leagues again, you'd probably approach it like in the same manner or given your, your one season of, of experience, is there anything that you would do to change, uh, your approach? I mean, I think I tend to be pretty aggressive on stuff. So I think I would go for the high leverage situation again. So yeah, I would probably do it exactly the same way. <laughs> and, you know, I, I feel like, uh, I would probably have a horrible team, yep. um, nine years and I might win one year, you know, and I think that's, you know, considering it's like a 12 team league, 
that's pretty decent. Yeah, actually, I don't hate approaches to things that are like that because it's better to position yourself to have that one run at things and really take it versus like uh, you see this in professional sports, like the organizations that are okay with going just a little bit above 500. I'm always like, do something to make that one run for it. Uh, but before we get out of here, because I actually am playing in the reality sports um, online Rotoviz League taking over a team. Uh, so I'm going to be in that. It's my first contract league. So I wanted to talk to 14 team Mocker, who is the commissioner now of our league. Uh, as I'm assuming that if I'm getting into these leagues and I have a lot of questions, we have to have listeners that do as well. So he's going to come on and answer some of my questions just about how you prepare for the format, things that, uh, might be common mistakes that you'll make to start things off. So he and I are going to go through that. So Matt, we're going to let you drop off here. But before you go, who are three players right now that are fantasy assets that you would be willing to sign to max contracts? No specifics, basically just asking for three players that you feel really good about over the next four years. The next four years. I mean, that's really tough. Um, So... I would say max is max contract. Yeah. I mean, so I, I mean, I think you have to go pretty chalky with your answers there. Um, I think Saquon Barkley is probably near the top there. Um, I think I probably, mm, probably Ezekiel Elliott, although it's just, it's tough. Like running back, I think is, is a really fragile position in something like this. Um, but I think you look at the value in drafts right now and running backs right now just seem to be a little more impressive than some of the wide receivers from a longer term perspective. So, you know, like, like Julio Jones, I don't want to lock into a four year contract with him. Uh, AJ green. I'm not sure about that. He's also aging. Uh, Mike Evans. I think he's impressive. Um, but I'm not really sure about his quarterback situation or his offense. Uh, DeAndre Hopkins is someone I'd probably be willing to lock in for four years because he's been pretty quarterback proof for almost the entirety of his career. Uh, so he's someone I'd be interested in. And then I guess I would say the other two would be running backs, Saquon and Zeke. But, uh, I'm, I am a little hesitant about them just because of the position, but I don't know if I love enough wide receivers uh, to be willing to give them four-year contracts just because I, I think a lot of the good ones are, are maybe too old for four-year max contracts. Yeah, you know, I was actually kind of thinking um, along the same kind of lines. Like there's receivers that I would feel better about across that four-year span. But I think that um, given a couple of things, uh, especially how tough it is to get those top-level running backs, I might want to build myself in um, – a couple of really strong ones. So getting like, uh, like you mentioned, like an Elliot, uh, or even like a Kareem Hunt or Melvin Gordon or something like that right now and ride them out for those first couple of years seems like it would be kind of enticing. And then I assume that, um, there'll be, it'd be easier for me to also recognize a, the up and coming receivers and B, they're going to have a better shelf life so I can get those players later. So you probably want to also do, uh, a type of configuration where you're thinking about the information that you have now. And um, it's harder to predict, I think, 
uh, the stretches where those young running backs are going to give you a lot of production, whereas receivers, it's easier to anticipate that you can get that four-year window out of them. So maybe you start, I would probably start building around that key running back and then addressing my wide receiver needs later in terms of going with that max contract. I think I would still probably focus a little bit more on getting wide receiver in there, but it would not be bad to get uh, yourself built around that one running back. Now, I'm taking over a team, so it's not like I'm going to be in the startup uh, draft here, which is one of the things I wanted to, to to talk to Mocker about to kind of pick his brain about. And he's also going to give us a little uh, some thoughts on how I did in the dispersal draft. So, Matt, thanks for coming on as always, and we will catch up with you next week. All right. Uh, but if you are like Matt and the contract league, the auction league are a little too much for you. Uh, then you do need to certainly check out the best ball leagues, the dynasty leagues, and your typical redraft leagues at the FFPC, which is the home of season-long high-stakes fantasy football. The 2018 fantasy draft season is in full swing, and the FFPC has a format to suit every diehard's interest and budget, whether it's best ball, super flex, or classic managed leagues. There are drafts filling daily, starting at just a $35 entry free, jump into a slow or live draft a day. And are you ready for the greatest challenge? Then check out the FFPC main event. In its 11th season, the main event is the world's biggest event in season-long fantasy football. Come to Las Vegas for a three-day weekend of live drafts and festivities at the Planet Hollywood Resort and Casino, or draft online from the comfort of your home. Play for $250,000, which is the grand prize. There's over $2.2 million in total prizes and fantasy immortality. So as I mentioned at the top of this show, um, I'm in the Rotoviz RSO league for the first time this season. I have not been in a league before that has contracts. I have a lot of questions about it, and I figure if I'm curious about some things, there's got to be listeners of the show that are curious about these types of leagues. So I'm bringing on right now the commissioner of the Rotoviz RSO League, which you may know from, or you may know him from Twitter as 14 Team Mocker at the Viz. He's just referred to as Mocker. What's going on, man? How are you? I'm good. How are you? I'm ready to talk uh, the nuances of salary cap. Yeah. So th- this is something entirely new for me. Uh, I guess before we get into some of the questions that I had planned for you, when did you start playing in contracts leagues? Was the Rotoviz uh, RSO league the first one that you did? Yeah, it's the uh, the only one I've been in, and still only one I'm in. And um, uh, we started it in 2015, so this will be the fourth season that I've been in it since it started. Gotcha. So I guess just to set the stage, can you give us like a quick synopsis of what the league is all about? And, and, uh, I guess RSO, which is reality sports online. Um, so I don't know how customizable it is, um, from the, the format we use, but generally the, the way it works, I believe for all the leagues is that you have a rookie draft that's fairly straightforward. Um, they get locked into fairly cheap contracts, uh, and you can choose whether they're three or four years long, and you can also choose whether or not uh, first-round picks get a fifth-year option. And then veterans are in a free agent draft for everyone whose contract comes up, which is sort of like a redraft mm-hmm. auction, uh, except that you did contracts and 
each league decides how many contracts of the longer lengths they give out. Ours, we give one four-year, two three-year, and three two-year contracts every year. And everyone else is a one-year contract. And the longer contracts, just like real life, um, you guarantee the money further out, but it's cheaper per year than signing one-year deals. Mm-hmm. Uh, so it's a fairly complicated auction, um, especially the very first year when everyone's available. Gotcha. And, um, yeah, I believe that's pretty much how it works for all the leads. Okay, yeah. So it's really kind of like, I guess, we're, we're almost simulating – a, a uh, actual NFL environment being like a GM, you have the $177 million each season that you're trying to assign to these different contracts that you have with players. And and so for me, I guess like, you know, coming just from having played a regular dynasty league, the biggest difference definitely was the uh, adjusting to the fact that there's the contracts and then when you're taking a player on, it's only going to be for a certain amount of time. So in your opinion, I guess now looking back, how do you think that that should impact how you might approach a startup draft? It would do, you know, going about that different than a regular dynasty league. Cause obviously in a dynasty league, you're trying to get guys and you're thinking about, you know, getting guys that you can have for long time frames in the future. But I'm assuming in a league like this, you'd probably want to approach it a little differently. Well, it's, it's definitely interesting because um, I, I, when I write about Dynasty, talk about how it should probably be approached in a much shorter window than it is. Um, people's, uh, because you can constantly trade players, you're not locked into them hardly ever. Most people, the trade windows only close for about a few weeks a year. Um, so to be able to constantly move them and people change their opinions on players so rapidly you should probably be approaching it in a much shorter window based on what you know, because no one can predict the future and the further out into the future you go, the less successful you're going to be. Um, this league kind of reinforces that. It kind of helps cement that for people. And it's interesting that even with how short the contracts are, you still make just horrific mistakes. I, um, for an example, we have one extension that we can use in the middle of each season. And I used mine last year on Doug Martin. After the first game he came back, he had a hundred yards and I bought into the, you know, he's back and he's motivated and the Bucks, you know, he's their starter. And he was still really cheap on the site because it averages what he's getting paid by other teams. So he was still getting paid, you know, with skepticism. So I locked him into a longer term deal that after the season, I was like, what was I thinking? And I, uh, I'm going to be paying him for years to come to be on other people's teams. Um, and so it, it's really interesting how even when the windows are short, you really can, can be so wrong. Yeah. It, it's quickly. Yeah, that's uh, a, the, the, just two interesting things there, just to kind of like reiterate what you said. I think it's really cool that the pricing for players is influenced by all of these different leagues. That's a really neat thing. And then also the fact that, you know, it's it's so realistic in that you're actually going to be paying for players that are no longer on your team. That's crazy. Uh, so what are some of the biggest, I know you mentioned a mistake of yours, but what do you think that some of the biggest mistakes that somebody might make if they're just jumping into one of these leagues? Definitely um, building your team like really young, like mm-hmm. getting 
lot of rookie picks because you really feel forced to hold them and they're probably not going to produce immediately. A lot of times wide receivers aren't even going to produce in year two. Um, I, I know the, the third year wide receiver breakout myth is overstated, but there are a lot of recent examples where you would have been sitting on these guys for a long time, like Devontae Adams or Devin Funches before you start to get that reward. I believe Nelson Aguilar was given up on by two different teams in this league, and he's still on his rookie contract. Um, so it um, it's definitely hard to lock yourself in there. You um, pay a lot for for to lock wide receivers into these contracts, but um, what you, you even saw it in the dispersal, Corey Coleman's rookie deal doesn't even look good anymore. And I mean, that was an expensive ask to lock him into that. Um, and so things of that nature, I think is, is, you know, it's not a great strategy in dynasty, but it is the mistakes are really exasperated in this format. Yeah, that makes sense, especially because you you owe them the salary, right? So like you said, if you're making moves, you can put yourself in a situation where you still have to pay these guys, which is one of the cool things because it does help you to kind of think through what you're doing if you were an actual GM, uh, which I think is one of the facets of this I'm the most excited about getting into. Um, And I guess the other thing that I'm curious about is, it's kind of a two-parter here. Has there been parity in the league? Have teams been... Um, you know, at the bottom one year, maybe the top the next year, or is it really like there's been one or two teams that have that real sound strategy, what they did has worked and they've just been at the top and the other teams have been kind of locked into similar finishes year over year. Um, I, I, this is a 16 team league. So there are a lot of teams to, uh, keep track of and remember, um, for sure. Um, we also have some very heavy hitters in this league. Um, Rotoviz, Legacy, uh, Lord Reeds, and uh, the contrarian Sean Siegel are both in this league. Oh, boy. Until uh, this year, Kevin Cole was also in it. Um, and um, Matt Freeman was in it the first couple years. Uh, so there are definitely um, some, some sharp players who you know always bring it um tyler uh tyler buker who is now at pff um he had a, a masterful performance one season just wire to wire that he won um he's always contending uh scott smith won another year um he's no longer in it though yeah. um so, you know, just it, it's the sort of thing where you're not you're not really locked into a constant rebuild because it's it's your roster turns over so much every year. So and, and you know, it's such a, a group of sharp fantasy players anyway. Mm, so I'm glad that you mentioned that, because I definitely am realizing when I was doing the dispersal draft and uh, doing the um, uh, rookie draft as well, I, I think that I was thinking too long term with every player where you are going to have some turnover year to year and there might be a couple of guys that you might consider the core of your team does that seem like an accurate way to think about it um it depends who you lock into your four-year and three-year deals and if you end up actually 
keeping them. Um, a lot of times people will shed those salaries in uh, Brock Osweiler type trades where they give someone a draft pick to take a terrible contract off their hands. Gotcha. Um, I was paying Arian Foster until last year because one of my original three year contracts, um, what was just a, I think I gave him like three years, 80 million. It was just insane. Oh gosh. Yeah. I was still paying him, you know, over a year after he retired. Um, but if you, if you hit on your four year deals, um, and uh, some people play it conservative, um, Kevin gave his original four-year deal to Aaron Rodgers, which is, you know, a conservative way to use it. You, you know he's going to be fairly priced on that for four right. years in the league and still be relevant. And uh, actually traded it to me pretty quickly that first year. And so that's obviously been a staple of my team. Um, I, other than Arian Foster, I'm not sure who my original contracts went to, but they are, they've all run out and expired. Um, but though that first year, anyone who gave these mega deals to wide receivers, um, you saw them all come up this year. Uh, Julio Jones and Mike Evans and Antonio Brown, I believe, and, and Sammy Watkins and AJ Green, they were all free agents this year because they all got massive deals in our original season. And those were definitely the cornerstones of people's teams, but you also have to work around giving a third of your salary cap to those one guys. Um, yeah, you know, so I kind of wish, so I'm coming in, um, you know, as a new player into this league, I really wish I had been there for at the start of it because it seems like that's, you know, you get to go through that whole challenge of kind of learning the whole uh, setup with everybody else. And I feel like, you know, it's probably, I would assume that that initial draft is probably super fun. Like, what do you think the funnest part of a league like this has been maybe in comparison to just your regular dynasty league? In that Initial draft, uh, Josh Gordon was, I believe, already suspended for the whole year. And Rich, um, Lord Reeves, uh, very obviously was not using his four-year contract and was saving it to try to get Josh Gordon, like, dirt cheap. Mm -hmm. uh, and when it finally came up, people just, you know messed with them by offering Josh Gordon these huge one year deals and it was <laughs> it was pretty exciting to see if he was actually gonna call someone bluff and stick them with a huge Josh Gordon contract that he was never gonna play on. But he ended up getting them and he is going to, for the first time this year, get to use Josh Gordon, hopefully on that four year contract that he has. That's but awesome. He, he's very cheap. He's making like what a third round rookie would make. Yeah. Um yeah, actually, that was an interesting thing, too. So a quick little little story here. Last year, I think in the, it was the free agent draft. Sean needed somebody to cover for him, and he asked me to do it. And I, I did. Oh, God, I did so bad. Um, but yeah, the auction aspect of it, I, I think is pretty fun too, because I, I've always enjoyed, uh, auction drafts a little bit more than snake drafts. And it's neat too, that, you know, you have, um, an opportunity to, to, to get those involved in the league as well. So any memorable trades that you've pulled off over the years that come to mind? There are, I've made two huge trades in this league, um, that, that stick out. Uh, Josh Hermsmeyer, uh, traded me. Doug Baldwin on a four-year contract 
and I think Doug Martin on a two-year contract for my DeMarco Murray uh, when he was at the absolute peak of his value. Uh, it was uh, allowed me to then I used Doug Baldwin for a while and then traded him uh, for both T.Y. Hilton and Emmanuel Sanders on for last season. And um, I had a bye last season. I didn't. I lost in the semifinals, but it was I was able to use that trade to make my team really strong last year. Yeah, uh, it was that was over two seasons, but uh, it worked out really well. One of the the biggest questions that I, I would have for you is, in terms of structuring the contracts in your team, right? If you would have an opportunity to do this league over, what would you be focusing on right out of the gate? And I know you've kind of already touched upon this, but I guess if you had to like kind of give us like a quick summary of where your head would be at if you were doing this again. Um, well, the way I've approached it in the past couple of years after sort of learning the format a little more is I use my rookie picks on running backs. I tra- tend to trade down. One really interesting thing is that this league works how the real league works where the first round has a year more than the other picks. So that last pick in the first round is still significantly more valuable than the first pick in the second. Mm-hmm. So if you're a, a team that always does well and people never value your first round picks very highly, it's nice for that reason. They are worth a little more. And I tend to trade trade either down to the end of the first or to the top of the second and take running backs. Um, I've drafted both Jordan Howard and Jamal Williams. Um, that's also the range. Rich uh, and um, I think Peter Fallon got Alvin Kamara and Kareem Hunt last year. It's a nice place to find running backs and lock them into longer contracts that aren't going to cost you anything if you're wrong, but are really valuable if you're right. Yeah, and, that, that's an interesting point. Oh, I'm sorry. Continue. No, no, no. Um, and then use your longer contracts on veteran wide receivers and tight ends, especially ones who seem to be going for like oddly cheap value. Just sort of be patient in the auction. Don't be married to anyone. I got Golden Tate on a really nice four-year deal. I wasn't going in saying I'm going to leave with Golden Tate. It, it just so happened he seemed really underpriced, and he was. Um, same with Zach Ertz. I had no intention of getting Zach Ertz, but his contract made no sense. And now he's entering, I believe, year three, and he's just he's so cheap. It, it, it's really nice. Um so that that's definitely the strategy I would recommend if you're doing it for the first time. Use uh, rookie picks um, on running backs, and you know your shorter contracts on running backs, and lock veteran wide receivers and tight ends into those longer deals. Yeah, I think that makes sense, especially now that you put some of these things into context. So after we get off here, I'm going to have to head back and see if I did any of these things so far. Uh, I guess my final question just would be, how long did it take you to wrap your head around all of the nuance and the challenge and the specifics of this league? Did it take a couple of years for you to really feel like you knew what was going on? Or were you able to actually jump in and after like the first year feel like you knew what was going on? I, I was gonna gonna comment on how you approached the dispersal. I, I did think it was really interesting you took uh, Juju Smith Schuster's really, really cheap rookie deal number one overall. Yep. 
Uh, I you could have taken David Johnson on a franchise tag, which is very cheap for David Johnson because the average of the top ten running backs is nowhere near what he would make. And could lock him into an extension. It's like an exclusive rights offer. So I thought that was a really interesting decision. Um, I don't know if you want to talk about uh, taking Juju Smith. The other thing you did that that the only other thing was you took Chris Hogan on a two year deal over Kenny Stills on a two year deal. And you know, obviously I gotta disagree with that. But <laughs> Well, I, I love Stills I love Stills for this year. We've talked about him a lot, but I I, I there was something about Hogan that allured me there. Um but as far as um wrapping my head around it, it it's really just you gotta be open to learning as you go and just sort of um realizing that that there's there's things that happen, you know, just over just like all other formats of fantasy football recognize you cannot predict the future. So don't try. Yeah, I, I, I like that. That's a very nice, succinct way to, to remind everybody of that. I guess though, just to like, uh, so my thinking with when I went with, with Schuster was I wanted to get a, a base in my team at receiver at least for the for the first couple of years and I felt like Juju was a way to kind of get going in that wide receiver route not and not going too expensive and I was curious to see I kind of thought that other people in the draft might be afraid to grab some of those top name guys like Le'Veon Bell I think was he available as well or I know Antonio Brown Julio Jones were as well I, I don't remember exactly um, but I kind of wanted to go that avenue instead of taking one of those franchise guys right off of the bat because I felt like there were other options out there that I could still put together a team um, that was going to be pretty solid without needing to spend too much on, on some of these players and I don't know if I really got there but I'm curious so do you think that I should have gone with David Johnson and that, that starting with Juju there was a mistake? The interesting thing about this league is that, um, well, first of all, it's a 16 team league, so everything is scarce. Yeah. Uh, running backs are hard to come by. You have to start two, so they become very hard to come by, but we have an extra flex spot that is wide receiver or tight end, no running back. So that makes the wide receivers a lot more valuable, probably more than they should be. They tend to get really overvalued because of that. Mm-hmm. So that contract you have, if you ended up not liking your team, you could have traded that for anything you wanted. So that's another nice part of locking him into that deal. It is, it's just so cheap. Yeah. Um, to, to put it into context, it, it's um, an eighth of what you're going to pay Travis Kelsey. I think it's about an 11th of what you're going to pay Julio Jones. So, um, right. But you, you were right that you could grab both of them later after, you know, everyone sifted through the others that were available. You could still get those franchise guys. So you were right about that. And I do think you were right to probably take him first for that reason. Yep. All right. Well, that makes me feel better. Yeah. Like when things actually came came together for me in the end, I was pleased with how it went. I think the other thing that I saw some of the guys doing were trying to grab more rookie picks than I did, um, especially earlier on. And my thought was, I'm going to take the guys that I have enough information to feel at least decent about what I can know, you know, what to expect from them in the, in the next couple of years where it seemed like some of the other guys were focused more on trying to get some of those rookies, which I thought was kind of an interesting way. So I was glad that I was one of the few people that was not going with that, uh, that direction. Yeah. The, I think it was, um, you know, just, it's, it's just the, 
the intuition that the rookie picks aren't costing you anything. So grab them when you can and you won't be locked into contracts. Yeah. Well, so, you know, I'm looking forward to it more. And as I start to get my head around, um, all of the the things you need to consider in this league i think i'll try to get matt and i to talk some more about contract leagues uh going forward because i do think that this is something that it's going to catch on more and again we're doing ours at reality sports online uh we've had an awesome experience there from what i've heard for for a number of years now so uh hopefully we can get some more coverage because i do think that this is going to be where things are headed in the future all right well hey thanks again for coming on mocker and uh you know, maybe uh, we'll get you back on at some point, uh, maybe at the end of the season to break down what actually unfolded. Yeah, hopefully uh, it goes well for one of us anyway. <laughs> yeah, well, fingers crossed. All right. Hey, thanks again, man. That's going to do it for today's episode. Once again, I'm Dave Cabin. You can follow me on Twitter at DaveCabinFF. My co-host was Matthew Friedman, who you can follow at MattFTheOracle. Don't forget to call into 978-925-7628 and ask away with your strategy questions. This has been Rotoviz Radio. Please subscribe to the podcast, leave us a review, and be sure to tune in next week. And remember, it's not a fantasy if you believe it. Thank you for listening to RotoViz Radio. Please rate, review, and contact us via email at rotovizradio at gmail.com. Follow us on Twitter at RotoViz Radio and support the pod by subscribing to RotoViz at a 30% discount through the listener homepage at rotoviz.com forward slash podcast. Yeah.